Take your copy of God's Word and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We are not long away from completing our study of this, Paul's second canonical letter to the church at Corinth. We'll begin this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. Lord willing, we will finish this chapter out this morning. Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking, in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. We'll stop there this morning. As far as Hollywood actors go, and that's not a very high bar, but as far as Hollywood actors go, you could, you could do a lot worse than Matthew McConaughey. For what it's worth, he was raised in a Baptist church and was actually named after the apostle, Matthew. <laughs> That's at least something. He was brought up in a decent family. Well, he, he left church while he was in college. He has since returned. And he attends church with his family Weekly, and he has made a number of concerning comments regarding Scripture, but there really aren't a lot of Hollywood celebrities more willing to talk about their faith and the gospel, and I can at least appreciate that. And that's why I say you could do a lot worse than Matthew McConaughey as far as successful Hollywood actors go. I know my Aunt Joyce would agree. She loves to say, All right, all right, all right. <laughs> If you know, you know. I should at least mention that he is a big-time college football fan. The bad part of it is he's a big-time Texas Longhorn fan. But for the purpose of this message, we won't hold that against him. But back in 2006, McConaughey starred in a movie entitled Failure to Launch. You may have seen it. In this film, he played a... 30-something-year-old who still lived at home with his parents. He refused to get out and get his own 
place. And so what they did is they took it into their own hands. They hired this attractive young lady hoping that she could get him married off and he'd finally move out. That's the entire plot. It's a, it's a romantic comedy, if you will. Now, I don't approve of everything in the movie, but it, it was funny enough. But the point of the movie, though, is that Trip, Matthew McConaughey's character in the movie, was a child who refused to grow up. Well, in this text before us this morning, really in this entire epistle, Paul could be likened to the parents in that film, frustrated that his spiritual children, the saints at Corinth, simply refused to grow up. That will become ever so clear as we move through this text this morning. The writer of Hebrews says of his audience in Hebrews 5, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. Well, Paul could have written precisely those same words to the church at Corinth. In fact, He did write very similar words to them in 1 Corinthians 3. Here's what he said, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even Now you're not ready, for you're still in the flesh. So like like Trip in Failure to Launch, the Corinthian saints were children who refused to grow up. We'll see how that plays out in the text. That is my title this morning, Children Who Won't Grow Up. And in this passage... Paul, as their spiritual father, chastises his children not only for their lack of respect for him, that's part of it, but for their unwillingness to respond to the truth of God's Word. Now let me just remind you, for the, for the better part of three chapters, Paul has lambasted the church for tolerating false teachers, really seeking to undermine the influence of these men that had made their way into the congregation and had bewitched these saints. A congregation that Paul had worked so hard to establish. And in the text we looked at last week, verses 11 through 13, Paul drew a proverbial line in the sand. On one side of that line stood Paul a true apostle of Jesus Christ. And on the other side stood these false apostles. There was no way you could follow both. You can't follow a true apostle and a false apostle at the same time. So these believers in Corinth, these, these weak, immature, undiscerning, childish believers were called to make a choice as to who they were going to follow. Paul or the false teacher? The section of this letter known as the Fool's Speech, a passage where Paul took that boastful posture to refute the charges of the false teachers, the Fool's Speech has ended. It ended with what we looked at 
last week. You know, Paul hated boasting, but is forced into it by these false teachers and by the church receiving that. It's often been said that 2 Corinthians is surely Paul's warmest, most passionate, most vulnerable letter. And I think we can see that in this section this morning. The pastoral heart of Paul is revealed so clearly in the text before us this morning. Well, let's jump into this. Verse 14. Here for the third time, Paul says, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So he says he's ready to come to them for the third time. So the first time Paul was there was when he was there some 18 months, when he established the church. He laid the proper foundation of the apostles' teaching. And he left Corinth with great hope for these people. But he was forced to return not too terribly long later for a second visit that was anything but hopeful. It's normally referred to as Paul's painful visit to the church at Corinth. We looked at that back in chapter 2 as Paul visited the church and then left defeated because of some problems that he encountered when he was there. He went back, he sent them this severe letter. Titus delivered that letter, has returned to Paul, and now he is planning a third visit to them. Here, he speaks about that. But he is unsure how this visit is going to go. That really rests with them, how they're going to respond. Now if you recall, back in chapter 11, verses 7 through 11, Paul explained his reasoning for refusing money from this church. You know, while he was doing ministry work in Corinth, the poor churches in Macedonia were funding his ministry there. The people in Corinth weren't. Well, he explains here, when he says and I will not be a burden to you. This is just language to say, when I return, that policy of refusing pay is still in place. I'm not taking money from you. I think it's clear to see this was some type of tension between Paul and this church. But the problem is they still had not learned their lesson, at least not in this. And now... There were these false teachers in the church who were taking money. And Paul certainly had no intention of giving any hint that he was like those, Paul, those false teachers. Paul didn't want their money. He said, I seek not what is yours. That's, that's their money. I seek not what is yours. On the contrary, it was them that Paul desired. In, in other words... Paul worked for their spiritual growth. He wanted them to mature, as Peter puts it. He wanted them to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Paul was their spiritual father in the faith. This is an illustration, by the way, that Paul uses with the church at Corinth on a regular basis. In 1 Corinthians 4, he addressing them as his beloved children... He writes, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul was their spiritual father. 
We know that He set a, a fatherly example before them. He says, imitate me the way that I imitate Christ. Paul continued to discipline them as His children. Obviously, there is this protective attitude that Paul has for them, specifically against these false teachers that have crept into the church here, would beguile them. Well, building on that idea, Paul here says it is the parent's duty to save up for the children and not the children's duty to save up for the parents. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to go down this rabbit trail very far. Just for clarity's sake, Paul is not saying that children should never help out their parents if their parents are in need. He's not saying that. In fact, in his letter to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul is very clear that the very first place that a parent should go for help is to children who are able to help them and not to burden the church if there's a child there that is able to help. And if a man is not willing to support his family, he is worse than an infidel and has denied the faith. That's actually about children supporting parents in that context. So he's not saying that Children should not help out their parents when they're in need. That's not what he means. This is just a general truth. This is the way that things normally work. Children inherit their parents' stuff, and usually it doesn't happen the other way. There are exceptions to that, of course, where a child dies young, but this is normally the way it works. And so Paul intends, as their spiritual father, to benefit them rather than to be benefited by them. I Desire not your stuff, but you, he says. In fact, listen to, the, listen to his heart being poured out in verse 15. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? So, so Paul like a good father, and in this case a spiritual father, of course, Paul is saying that he is willing to spend and be spent for their souls. Paul is not in this thing for the money. It took money to operate. Other churches helped Paul out in ministry. That, that's certainly true. But Paul's goal in ministry was the, the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of those who came to faith. And he spent his entire life working towards that very end. Paul would put it all on the line for these people. Even sacrificing himself if he was called to do so. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. In, in one way, this is not surprising. I say that because Paul was following the example of Jesus, right? Chapter 8, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you by His poverty might become rich. So Paul is just living the gospel out to these saints. So in that way, it's not a surprise. Then again, it is a great surprise, at least from the human standpoint, that a man is actually willing to do this. It is unnatural. 
It is unnatural to be willing to give all you have for someone else's benefit. Me and Wendy were watching a show the other night, and the guy had to climb up this tall crane to save his family from a burning building. And with as much love as I could muster up, I looked at the wife who I love with every fiber of my body, and I just said, we would both die if that was me right there. But Paul had this supernatural willingness to give everything he had for their good. And this is evidenced quite clearly, or this evidence is quite clearly that Paul's attitude is the very opposite of the false teachers that they were following. Those men were not willing to sacrifice themselves at all. They were literally in it for the money. Paul, in, earlier in this letter, said that they were peddlers of God's Word. And though Paul's integrity had been proven, it should have been clear, and these saints should have defended him, that was not the case. And so he writes, If I love you more... Am I to be loved less? In other words, if Paul has loved them even more than a father loves his child, why have they loved him so much less than a child loves his father? Even worse, some of them were actually using Paul's refusal to take money from them, saying that it's just part of a bigger scheme wherewith he will get even more money. From us, Notice, it's very clear. Verse 16, But granting that I myself did not burden you, I didn't take money from you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. So, some were saying that Paul was just being crafty. Or it could be translated sneaky. Right, this is just a tactic on Paul's part. I assume that the false teachers were the leaders in this, but obviously some in the church had bought into their lies. The, the charge seems to be that Paul did not take their money, but he's running this collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And he can skim off the top of that and get a whole lot more than he ever would have gotten from us in person. That seems to be what they were accusing him of. I say that because of what we're going to look at here in just a second. Look, Paul squashes that idea. Look, he wasn't the only one involved in the, in the collecting of this money going to Jerusalem. They were essentially not only accusing Paul, but from everyone else that was involved. Paul said this would be quite a ring that we're running here. There were no facts to back up that Paul was embezzling. Notice verse 17. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we act? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? There is some disagreement, by the way, as, as to which trip by Titus to Corinth that this refers to. It, it, it could be referring to Titus about to go. 
to Corinth. In other words, back in chapter 8, Paul said that Titus and two unnamed brothers were going to deliver this letter, 2 Corinthians, to the church there in Corinth. If that's what Paul is talking about, then he's essentially saying, look, since they've gotten there, have any of these men lacked any integrity at all? Have they tried to do anything wrong? This, this would have, if that's the case, this would have been a significant amount of trust that Paul had in Titus and those other brothers since he would have not been there to actually know the answer to that question. I suppose that scenario is possible and some commentators entertain it, but I, I would say it's unlikely. I think it's, it's more probable that Paul is referring to Titus's most recent visit to Corinth when he delivered the severe letter, the letter written in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Since then, Titus had returned to Paul and not with wads of cash. Paul's question here is whether Titus had shown any hint of deceit, any lack of integrity. Had had Titus and the brother who accompanied him, whoever that is, we don't know, had they tried to swindle the church out of money while they were there? The obvious answer was no. And Paul was demanding that they accept the facts in in this scenario. Listen, church leaders are not above correction. Even Paul, even Peter, as we looked at this morning. In this case, Paul was being accused of misusing, or or perhaps even worse, embezzling church funds. But if we have no reason to believe that, then on the authority of this text, we shouldn't. Some were entertaining that, and Paul said, you have no reason to believe that. These people should have defended Paul, but for whatever reason they had not. And I am certain that Paul was seriously hurt by these accusations. Nevertheless, here's here's the heart of Paul. It did not stop him from pressing on. He was still the pastor. Not the actual pastor, but he had a pastoral heart. Listen, the fact of the matter is, Children often break their parents' hearts. Some of you may have children too young to have known that, but it's going to happen sooner or later, and it really usually happens sort of, sort of early on, maybe in Walmart sometime. I don't know. But you don't stop loving your kids when they break your heart. And Paul did not stop ministering to these saints even though they had broken his heart even though they had treated him so terribly. Well, look, then Paul reveals the reason that he wrote so strongly to these people. Listen to what he says in verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. Now look, Paul had been defending himself. That's what this letter is. It's a defense of Paul's ministry, Paul's position as an apostle. He's not saying that he had not defended himself. But Paul was not defending himself for the sake of Paul. And he had no need to defend himself to them. 
At least not, at his, not as his judges. But back in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul wrote, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Look, Paul says, look, I, I don't even know of anything necessarily that I'm doing wrong, but that doesn't make me not guilty. It is the Lord who judges me, he said. Well, look, that's still true here. He wrote that in 1 Corinthians 4, but that's still true here in 2 Corinthians 12. Thus, he writes, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. Look, this is Paul's biggest concern. What does the Lord think? And he's written for their benefit, telling them precisely what they needed to hear. All for your upbuilding, he says. And don't let it slip by you that he refers to them here as beloved. Despite their ill treatment of him, Paul still loved these saints. He still ministered to them out of his love for them. Listen, put, your play, put yourself in the place of a shepherd, like, like a shepherd of actual sheep. That's, that's hard for us because we don't know a lot about that, but just think about that for a moment. You've got this group of sheep, small group of sheep in the bigger flock, and they just repeatedly wander off, fight against your leading, making your job way more difficult than it should be, more than you ever thought that it would be. Now, most of us would be putting in applications somewhere else, right? Not Paul. He was the ever-patient shepherd because he loved the sheep. Even while they were biting the proverbial hand that fed them, Paul is still spending himself for their spiritual good. And again, this is to be contrasted with the false teachers who were padding their back pockets. Nevertheless, Paul still had very major concerns for many in this church. It, this is somewhat shocking to read of a, a church, but this is inspired. This is Corinth. We know that this is true. Look at verse 20. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may, I may not find you as I wish. And that you may not find me as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. This, this verse and the next verse reveals Paul's purpose for being so forceful in this letter. In facing all of these problems head on. He, he is fearful that the sins of their past, sins he addressed in 1 Corinthians, are still hanging on, at least by some in the congregation. The apostle is concerned that he might not find them like he wants when he arrives on his third visit. And in turn, they might not get the Paul that they had seen before either. Do you remember what the false teachers had said about the apostle Paul? 
chapter 10, verse 10, they said his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Paul warns them here, that's not the Paul you're going to get if I return and things are like I'm afraid that they are. For those of you that grew up in the late 70s, early 80s, like I did, you watch The Incredible Hulk, you remember that? The real one, you know. You may recall in the introduction to the show, Bruce Banner, he's telling the reporter that chased him around, he said, Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. That's the feel I get here with Paul. Except whatever Paul might feel is not from an overexposure to gamma radiation, right? This could be called righteous anger. Like Paul has their best in mind. He's not angry for anger's sake. He's angry because he loves them. He's angry because false teachers had infiltrated the church and bewitched them. Colin Cruz writes, quote, the apostle was ready for a showdown, end quote. Amen. That's exactly what he is saying here. Now, Paul seems to be quite worried that the divisiveness he addressed in 1 Corinthians was still lingering in this congregation. He points out a number of what we might call attitudinal sins, sins of the attitude that tend to rouse division in a church. I'm not going to take very long on each one. Most of these are self-explanatory, but let's run through them right quickly. A quarreling disposition is one that is always on the prowl, always looking for a fight. Guys, listen. A church is made up of redeemed sinners. Redeemed. Yes, praise the Lord but sinners nonetheless. If you're looking for something to fight about, I promise you, you can find it. Well, Paul is warning against that type of attitude here. Don't be always looking for a fight. Don't have a quarreling disposition. Jealousy is exactly what it sounds like. Bitter zeal, really promoting a sense of rivalry, factions within the church. Cliques, if you will. Most of us grew up with cliques in school, and, and, and they only divide. You can't sit at this table because you're not part of the right group in the school. Paul's saying that was going on here in the church. We know that if we studied 1 Corinthians. It was even going on at the Lord's table. Anger. Paul mentions, or, or perhaps fits of anger. That's the way it's actually translated in Galatians 5 in the passage outlining the, the works of the flesh followed by the fruit of the Spirit. Look, this anger or fits of anger is often the response of those with a quarreling disposition, those with a, with a tendency to jealousy. If, if you find yourself angry on a regular basis... Consider that the Bible does not have much good to say about that. You say, yeah, but the Bible says be angry and sin not. Well, let me just squash the idea that we do that on a regular basis. That's not our norm. Listen, if you are always angry at pretty much everybody all the time, you need to accept the fact that it's probably not all them. 
Hostility, he mentions here, or, or perhaps as the NIV renders this, selfish ambition. This is, a, this is what we might call a, a my way or the highway attitude. One is, is always out for his own preferences without any consideration for the good of the brothers and sisters or, or, or the church as a whole. Slander. This was near to Paul because... This is certainly reminiscent of what the false teachers had been doing to Paul, what some in the church had entertained. Slander is, is referring to, to smearing someone's character. For some reason, many in this church had believed the slander or the slanderous accusations that some had made against Paul. And while slander is doing it publicly... Gossip is just about the same thing, just being done behind someone's back. H.A. Ironside described it as, quote, saying things behind the back that they would never dare say to the face, end quote. That's a pretty good description. Conceit, or as some translations render this, arrogance. It just refers to thinking too much of oneself and one's own opinion. While disorder or perhaps disorderly behavior refers to actions that are simply out of step with what a normal believer, church member, should be living. Like We should be seeking unity around the gospel, and disorderly behavior destroys that. Well, I don't, I don't think it takes a lot of explaining that these type of attitudes in a church body will destroy a church very quickly. And the problem with that is it will destroy the witness of the gospel. That's what we need to consider. Guys, if we see these tendencies reflected in our own lives and our own attitudes, we need to be diligently, tirelessly working to get rid of them. There is no excuse for acting like this. Now, as I said early, earlier, these, these are the very things that Paul warned them about in 1 Corinthians. And Paul feared that they had not responded rightly. At least many had not. But that's not all. Notice this here at the end. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. And this is obviously a completely different list than the one that we just looked at. Primarily, the previous verse described attitudes and actions that affect unity in the local church. We might say attitudes and actions that are divisive. Here, that's not the case. Here, Paul is concerned that sinful lifestyles, by the way, things that he discussed in 1 Corinthians, he's concerned that those sinful lifestyles are still lingering on. He's concerned that many have not repented of impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Really, these three terms all are used to describe some type of sexual perversion, sexual sin. It's not 
specific enough to know exactly what all this could entail, but anything from pornography to homosexuality or transvestism, or ever how you say that, LGBTQ+. Paul's concerned that some of that even could be going on. It was before. He warned them about it in 1 Corinthians. At the very least, there were unmarried people involved in sexual relationships. And you can tell Paul is heartbroken over this. Just as a good father's heart breaks over a child that falls victim to sexual sin. He expects that when he arrives, he may have to mourn over many of the church members' actions. Now this first phrase in this verse is interesting. He says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. It's hard to know precisely what Paul means. I don't know for sure. But this much we are sure of. Paul was so invested in these people that he took it quite personally when they fell into sin and it hurt him deep. How many parents have been humbled by the actions of their children? You either have or your children ain't old enough yet. I mean, most of us have been in Walmart when somebody else's kid was acting up and we made the most boneheaded boast ever and it begins like this, my child will never dot, 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 dot. Something. And then most of us have had to eat those words and we've been humbled, you see. Well, whatever Paul meant, he says he's going to be humbled and that's the work of God. We know that Paul had daily pressure on him of his anxiety for all the churches. I cannot fathom that Corinth wasn't near the top of that list. Well, when they hurt, when they stumbled, when they as children refused to grow up, he hurt for them like a good parent. But Paul knew even in this situation, God was working on him too. Our God is big like that. Perhaps the best way to describe what we read here is Paul had the heart of a pastor. This is a, this is a disordered church. Nothing about these attitudes and actions were going to make anything better. All of this must be corrected or things were going to continue to get Worse. That is the only possible outcome. False teachers had come in teaching false doctrine. I mean, that's what you would expect. Men who simply refuse to accurately preach the Word of God, and that can only make matters worse. And what it does is actually enables children to keep on acting like children. That's precisely what we see here. Paul knew it. And so he fully expected that when he returned to Corinth, that's what he was going to find. Children who would not grow up. D.A. Carson writes, quote, The spiritual and doctrinal state of a church 
will sooner or later be reflected in the moral arena as well, end quote. Amen. Amen. That's a big discussion, but amen. And the on, only the right preaching of Scripture could correct those issues. I know we quote it all the time, but in this day and age that we find ourselves in, it needs to be quoted all the time. It probably needs to be quoted more. 2 Corinthians 3, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's why Paul went on to tell young Timothy, Preach the Word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience, which Paul displays to the church at Corinth and teach. That is not what the false teachers were giving the saints in Corinth. In fact, they were fighting against one of the very men through whom God gave us the New Testament. They were fighting against what Paul calls a true apostle in last week's message. Listen, guys, what we see here in Paul is the heart of a pastor. Understand, your, your elders and even your teachers are out for your good. I, I, I hope, they hope, we hope your life is easy and productive and you're vibrant and full of health, but that's not precisely what I, I mean here. I'm referring to your spiritual health and growth. I, I mentioned earlier that, that a local church is often like, likened to a flock of sheep. And the leaders of the church likened to shepherds. Now, picturing that is, is easy. The goal is not difficult. The shepherd is to care for the health of the sheep. In this case, spiritual health, but the health of a sheep, the sheep nonetheless. And, and, and the sheep are to, to feed on biblical instruction so that they grow and mature and are able to serve the Lord. Now, that sounds simple. But it's not always so easy. Yeah, I've got 25 years of experience in this, and it's much harder than anybody told me it was going to be going in. Most of the time when you take a job, they don't explain to you the difficulties of the job up front. So there's, there's regularly disappointment, heartache, worry, concern. And it's, it's just a thankless job a lot, a lot of times. I mean, it is what it is. Hours and hours go into preparing a 45-minute sermon no matter how we feel. No matter how we feel. No matter what curveball life throws at you throughout the week. There have been times that I spent 10 or 12 hours on a sermon. I know Brian and Jacob have done the, the same. Blake as well. 8 or 10 is just par for the course. For me. And Paul worked a, a lot harder than Todd. I can't speak for the others here, but I'll go out on a limb and say it's probably the same. But listen, like, like Paul is hurt here in this text, good shepherds, elders, are hurt when the sheep continually refuse to respond to biblical leadership. You may have heard the old proverb, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Well, I've learned after 25 years of ministry, the same is true of sheep. 
And often it's the very sheep that you've invested the most time in. You see the most gifting in. They continue to wander. Listen, I want to lay all the cards on the table. We are out for your good. We are. As an elder team, we desire your spiritual growth and a maturity so that one day you stand before Jesus and you hear the words, well done. If we were in it for the money, we'd have moved on years ago. But we're invested. Love builds up. That's what Paul's doing. Hate tears down. That's what the false teachers were doing. And sadly, that's what many in the church there were doing. But Paul loved this church. Even referring to to them as beloved, though many there had chosen to listen to the false accusations of the intruders, he still calls them my loved, beloved. This was a church that Paul had invested so much time into And many there had repeatedly stabbed him in the back, and yet he pressed on for their good. That is love. That's what we're called to do. Not just elders, by the way. We are all called to love that way. It's not complicated. It's just really hard to do sometimes. Guys, look, our our maturity as a Jesus follower... Our maturity is not exhibited primarily in our ability to spell out every doctrinal point perfectly. That's that's needful. But our maturity as a child of God is exhibited in our attitudes and our actions, how we treat those around us, how how we model our lives after the example of Jesus. That's how we see our maturity. And that's what Paul desired of these saints. By the way, these saints in Corinth, they had a lot of knowledge. Paul said so. 1 Corinthians 1. He says, In every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. They had the knowledge. And yet Paul calls them immature children, infants in Christ. Because their attitudes and actions were not changed nearly enough according to the knowledge that they possessed. Guys, let's be better than them. I beg of you this morning, do not be a child who refuses to grow up. Stand with me if you will. Blake, will you dismiss us please?